the ideas, the leaders, the lives that are shaping Denmark and the world. From Blocks Hub in Copenhagen, Denmark, with your co-hosts, Ed Lay and Thomas Mulhern, this is Global Denmark. Hello and welcome back to the Global Denmark podcast, where we explore how thought leaders and innovators are working to create a better Denmark and a better world. We have the pleasure of sitting down with Peter Svar, speaker, author of the bestseller, Veskevi Mimenska, or What Do We Do With Human Beings and the Perfect Storm. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discussed a variety of subjects, including artificial intelligence and the human being's role, the ethics of artificial intelligence, regulation of social media conglomerates, and how we can create an ethical framework to guide technology. Without further ado, we bring you Peter Svar. We are back. I am here with my co-host, as always, Mr. Ed Lee. Ed, how's life? Great, thanks. Yourself? I am alive, so that's a, a good thing. And we are here with our special guest today, Mr. Peter Svar. Is that correct? Yes, Svar or Svar, yeah. All right. Well, welcome to the studio. Thanks for coming by. Thanks. Peter, we want to dive right in. Uh, you recently wrote a book. The Danish title is Veskevi Mimensker, and in English... It's what should we do with human beings? Yes. What should we do with human beings? Well, there's. I mean, it's it. The title is is. It's actually very ironic because it's it's meant to provoke people because it, it basically says what what should you do with people and and very often when we talk about artificial intelligence, which the book is about, uh, people will conclude that they will take over our jobs. They'll end up being smarter than us and. And they'll outcompete human beings. And I mean, there are people like Ray Kurzweil and uh, techno prophets saying that uh, that uh, this will happen within 30 or 40 years. And um, I mean, that that may happen, but I'm I'm I tend to be a little skeptical about that. So I think there's uh, there's a lot of room for human beings for many many years, probably hundreds, if not even thousands of years from now on. Kurzweil is a futurist. Yes. Um, and he talks about kind of that exponential rapid uh, growth in technology once we reach uh, a yes. certain point. Yes. What I can hear is you don't think that um, we're going to reach that point anytime soon? Where? No, no. I mean, I think, I mean, the big fallacy about Ray Kurzweil is that he is, I mean, he is what I would call a hyper-technological determinist. He basically looks at, at technology and then thinks that technology has kind of a path that it just kind of drives by a certain path, and then we people just have to kind of uh, listen to or follow the technology. And and he he's right that I mean, especially if you look at microchips, the the development has been exponential for the last what is it, like thirty or forty years. So computers have tended to become exponentially faster, which means that every what is it two years or something like that, they, they the speed of a computer processor doubles up and. And that's that's why I mean a, a huge mainframe computer thirty years ago is now will now fit into a mobile phone and so on and and that that I mean when something becomes exponential then it the development is pretty crazy and he basically takes that kind of microchip scenario and then he kind of adopts that to kind of all of society saying that all of technology is is moving exponentially and and that means that if you kind of project 
into the future, if you look at uh, artificial intelligence today, and if you look what, what look at what what's going to happen in 30 years, then 30 years from now, it the processing power of an, an artificial intelligence or a computer will be roughly similar to a human brain, and when that happens, they will be as smart as as, as us. And 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 when that happen when that happens when they're when they're as, as smart as us then they're going to be even smarter they're going to improve themselves and then then they're basically what what he's saying is that they're they will melt together with artificial intelligence and what will happen what he's what he's saying is that what will happen is what he calls a singularity yeah. which is a point in time where we can't even we can't even kind of look behind what's happening on the other side because we'll get so many we'll get thousands of times smarter because we will kind of augment our brains with with artificial intelligence and so on so it'll be so radically different that we we are unable to understand what's going to happen there it's but it's like but, entering a black hole on the event horizon yes it's the event horizon so you basically you could, that's why he calls it the singularity which is actually a term that comes from kind of astrophysics okay. he's not alone in in that that theory though is he there's i mean elon musk is uh, yes 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 you, you have i mean elon musk that. and then uh, stephen hawkins was uh, also one of the people's kind of uh, being some smart people on the side there's some very that. smart people and i i mean i feel a little humble and, and it, sometimes it, it's it seems a little preposterous to kind of be little peter swire here in copenhagen i've written a book about artificial intelligence and i'm kind of Saying that that uh, Ray Kurzweil is full of bullshit. I mean, it's and and Elon Musk and so on. But I think I mean they they are full of bullshit because I mean if it, the interesting thing is, I actually for researching my book, I've of course I read like a ton of books, but I also talked to most of the people doing a lot of the people doing uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence kind of experts and data scientists in Denmark, people working with it in business and 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 so on. And I mean. None of the people that I talked to talked about this scenario. All of them said that, I mean, this this is not the way that technology is developing. And, and if you look at artificial intelligence today, yes, they'll get faster. Yes, they'll get more intelligent, whatever that means. We can have that discussion what does that as well. Mean? Yeah, yeah. That we can, I mean, we, I think we can get back to that because that's an interesting question as sure. well. But, um, but they will get more intelligent. But right now, there is nothing in machine learning, which is basically what we're talking about when we're talking about uh, artificial intelligence. There's nothing in machine learning which points at a future where there will be anything similar to human beings. I mean, they are, they can do a lot of amazing things. They can recognize images. They can kind of drive cars uh, autonomously. Uh, they can do a lot of really s things that they were unable to do 30 years ago, but they are so far from being anything like human beings. They have no ethics. They have no understanding of the world. They they fail on the simplest ta tasks uh, that, that we kind of uh, give them. And, and, I, and so basically we we need, there needs to be some kind of major technological breakthrough that we haven't seen yet before we can reach that point where they will actually end up being smarter than us. Uh, so you're not saying it's impossible that we reach the singularity. You're just saying that the time no. frame is No, I mean, I, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of an atheist and I'm, I don't have like a, a religious belief in that human beings have a soul or something that makes us different. I think we are a machine. We are a biological machine. There's a, a computer scientist in the U.S. His name is Marvin Minsky, and he said we are meat machines. It's mm -hmm. a terrible expression, but that's what he said. And I think we are meat machines. So, I mean, basically, yes, I think we, we can probably maybe be copied at some, some point because I don't think there is something magic to us. 
but I think we are immensely more complicated than, than we think today. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why I think this is also because one of the really interesting things about my book and the research in my book was when I started researching the book, I was like, well, I, I need to have a chapter on the history of AI. And it was kind of a thing I was like, yeah, I, I just need to write this because there needs to be a chapter on the history. And then suddenly I started reading about this and realized that, that there was a, a long history which stretches back, I mean, maybe even thousands of years. Uh, and, and the first example is actually from the 12th century where uh, Arabic astronom astronomers tried to create something they called the Se'irja, which was like a machine to imitate human thinking. And, and this is one of the first examples of people actually trying to imitate uh, human thinking. And, and, and then from, from there on, we see in the 15th century, the 18th century, we, we have uh, Charles Babbage, a uh, British guy in the, uh, in the 18th century in England, who, who created one of the first uh, uh, mechanical computers, actually the drawings of a mechanical computer. And he worked with Ada Lovelace, who was a daughter of uh, Lord Byron, and, and she actually wrote the first computer program for, for this machine. And, and she looked at this machine and said, if we're able to build this machine, then someday in the future, it may actually be as intelligent as, as human beings. It'll be able to play music and, and so on. So, so the history of artificial intelligence goes way back. And the, the interesting thing is whenever people kind of try to build something human, I mean, also for 500 years ago, they started imagining that they would become smarter than us. Uh, and, and the story about Frankenstein, which is kind of the kind of classical yeah. story about artificial intelligence, yeah. is all about this. And it's all about, it's the same fears that we are facing now. We'll build something, it'll, it'll end up being stronger, maybe slightly more primitive, but it'll end up being strong, stronger than us and actually out-competing us. Mm -hmm. and, and so when you get that historical perspective, and you look at what people are talking about, Elon Musk and, and all, uh, Ray Kurzweil, it's the same story again. It's the same story that now we've had, we've seen a breakthrough. We've, we, we have machine learning, which is performing some incredible feats right now. And machines are doing things that, that they've never done before. But so they did in the 18th century. So they did in the 15th century. So they did in the 12th century. And, and, and I'm basically saying, I think we are actually as far away, more or less as far away from human-like artificial intelligence as we were in, in the days of Mary Shelley and her writing Frankenstein. I think we, you know, as someone who's by no means a machine learning expert and just an average person looking at this, you know, you see self-driving cars, you see the smartphone, you hear people like Musk and Kurzweil yeah. and everyone talking about, you know, the digital revolution and everything, yeah. and then you think, yeah, I guess, and you watch, you know, science fiction movies, anything. Yeah, I guess that's, why wouldn't we be going there? And I guess it's coming soon. Exactly. But imagine being a person in the 18th century and, yeah. and you, the steam machine came along and someone told you that bacteria yeah. were kind of little microscopic <laughs> things yeah. running around in we're your body. We're always living and, in modern and, times, right? And now you, you, suddenly you had something called penicillin in the, in the 20th century and, and it could cure these bacteria. And so, I mean... Imagine being living in those days, and they these people had the same imaginings about the future. Now we can control the human body, we can copy the the human beings, and we will create kind of true artificial life at some point. And and I think it's it's part of the same fiction that we are going through right now. Because actually, when you look at machine learning, it's fairly advanced statistics, and and it it has nothing to do with the way kind of the the human brain works. Yeah, maybe we can kind of 
break that down now. Like intelligence, you said yeah. before, Edward. What do you mean by intelligence? How are we using that? Yeah, well, I mean, basically, I, I would prefer not to use the word as all, at all, because, I mean, we, the thing is, we don't really know what intelligence means. And, and when we talk about it, we, we very often talk about it uh, based on the intelligence, the IQ test, which was developed, I think, 100 years ago or something like that, and which is this really primitive test, which takes kind of everything that human beings can do and then boils it down to one single number. And, and it's just, a, it's an incredible primitive reduction of, of what people can do and what they can't do. Sure. And, and I think it's, it's also one of the problems then when we're talking about artificial intelligences getting, getting smarter than us, that we focus on that kind of tiny little number. And, and we have this, we're basically saying that we can, we have intelligence for human beings, which is somewhere between what eighty and one hundred and fifty, or something like that. And then we were talking about intelligence for frogs, which we say, well, that's then maybe ten or twenty or something like. That. But but the thing is, frogs' intelligence cannot be measured on that scale. It's a completely different intelligence. It's it's yeah. on a different kind it's of, a, part of our it's brain. a different plane. Yeah. So and I, uh, the another futurist or technologist, uh, Kevin Kelly, who was the founder of um, Wired magazine, yep. he actually talks about intelligence as kind of a fan that is fanning out where you have kind of monkeys and frogs and ants and beetles and then human beings. And they're not on the same line of intelligence there, but it's kind of fanning out. It's all, and basically what he's saying is a, a monkey is incredibly intelligent about being a monkey. It's very good at climbing in trees and eating bananas and kind of interacting in monkey societies. And if you put a human being, a very intelligent human being, into a monkey society, he would fail miserably. Um, so, and, and that's one of the things I, I think we, we may also have to understand that these machines are intelligent in a completely different way than human beings. They, they, are, they are on a different plane. And, and very often also, I mean, different types of uh, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms will be intelligent in, in different ways. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Uh, I heard a quote, and I'm going to butcher it, also from Kevin Kelly, that was something along the lines of, um, in the whole AI discussion, I want to know why they think when machines do become more intelligent than humans, why is it they're going to choose to wipe us all out? Mm. What, what is so what is so intrinsically yeah. wrong with yeah. the human race that they see us as a virus or whatever? Actually, the reason why I I started kind of researching the AI book was because I got into that whole debate, which is what happens if they end up getting smarter than, than us. And sure. and I mean now I've been talking about that. I don't think that it's going to happen anytime soon, but but it may happen. And and. Uh, it's a really inter interesting and very philosophical discussion what will actually happen if it does happen. Because imagine that one day these computers, they hit kind of a point where they are actually as smart as us. And then they can start to improve themselves. And they, what we all know is that computers are faster. They think faster than us. So imagine you have a brain that is as strong and it does the same thing as a human brain, but it's just a million times faster. And so this brain is as smart as a computer scientist building our AIs, so it can start building new AIs, and it's working a million times faster than human beings. So what's going to happen then? Well, then suddenly they're going to be really, really smart in, in, in a very short time. And there's a Swedish philosopher, his name is Nick Bostrom, and he's, I mean, he's kind of pro probably the, the main person talking about these things. And, and he's saying, well, it sounds a little crazy, but kind of you may move from intelligence, human level intelligence, 
to kind of IQ level thousand or five thousand or mm-hmm. something like that in in a couple of hours if if this happens and then then what happens and then you have like an incredibly smart machine that is like thousand times smarter than human beings and they can basically solve kind of all the problems in the world kind of the environmental crisis is is not a problem it can be solved like that because it can just think out kind of solutions to all these problems and um, the big question of course is so what's their morality what's their purpose in life yeah. um, and and this is where the disco- are they going to buy why was us because they would uh, i would assume at one point are these are they conscious are they aware yeah. of the fact that they are yeah machines yeah and then consciousness that's, is, is that's the other big word in that there's intelligence consciousness is recreatable right and, if we are yes machines and and what does conscious actually actually mean again yeah so but but if we get to that scenario where they are smarter than us then i mean there are three things that can happen they they'll be really nice to human beings or they will be really bad which is like in any science fiction movies typical yeah. scenario terminator and so, so, and, so on. and and then there's uh, the third scenario is they'll just don't care and uh, and whenever you talk to these people like nick brostrom and there's another other guy named um, eliezer yudkovsky who's they're actually running institutes kind of academic institutes dealing with these matters they're saying like the two first scenarios are completely unrealistic because they're not going to be nice or, or bad. Why, why, why would they? But there is a very great likelihood that they will not care about human beings at all. And As if ants yes. are in a war against us, yes. but we don't yes. know it. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, <laughs> imagine like uh, the, the way people think about uh, ants. If, if we are building a dam somewhere and there is an anthill, would we care about the anthill? No, not really. We would still build a dam. And they sure. would. They, what they're saying is they would probably be something like that. If human beings sure. are useful in any way, then they would be nice to us. But we are in, if we are in their way... Uh, but I think for, we always assume that there would be a basic survival mechanism like there is in human beings in the robot yes. not want to be turned off. Yes, yes. And, and but that's, I don't know if we're just exporting our own survival mechanism from yeah. our biology. But then yeah. you're prehistorically yeah. suggesting that um, that this device, whatever it is, it's, can be turned on or off because they're using the same art, the, it, the same well, prehistoric it, it, means. It depends on what their goal powering. is. True. Yeah. <laughs> because if if they have any kind of goal, whatever... And, and the goal and is it, the software program. Yeah, but but let's, let's say uh, Nick Brostrom has a famous example. which is like a, a, a artificial intelligence that... The goal is to build paper clips. Yeah. Uh, and if it has this goal, which is like a very simple, very primitive goal, but this is the goal, and it's a thousand times smarter than us, then if we try to turn it off, it'll do whatever it takes to hinder us. What if it finds out that the best solution to ba- build paper clips involves turning it human beings? Yeah, exactly. Then, and, and that's the paper clip scenario is what he's saying is that it what will end up happening is that it will kind of take over the world. It will kind of turn every atom in kind of on Earth in and then it will start exploring the universe and kind of colonizing the universe. And it, it won't stop before the entire universe yeah. has been turned into paper clips. And because, I mean, our human bodies can be turned and kind of the material, the atoms sure. and, and molecules can be turned into paper clips, they would of course turn us into paper clips as well. Yeah. Uh, so that's the scenario. And, 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 and if we try to at any point try to turn it off, it would of course try to stop us turning it off because it has a goal which is more important than being turned off. Yes. And is there a scenario where it by it's already happened? That's 
and we're living in it right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah. I, I don't know. A parallel universe? Or? No, no. Right now. No. Yeah, I forget. We, we're all. Oh. We're all computer programs living in the matrix yeah oh, the matrix yeah now i forget there's there's another kind of famous guy who's, who's basically saying that there is a really great likelihood that we are living in a computer simulation right now because basically yeah. it what he's saying there's so many stars so many planets in in the universe so the likelihood that our species would be the first to reach this point where we we're building artificial intelligences is very low so probably very likely somewhere in the universe someone ended up being really smart, building artificial intelligences and virtual worlds uh, at some point, maybe even kind of billions of years ago. And, and these people would, of course, build simulated universes just for the fun of it. Sure. And which, which would mean that there's a great likelihood that our world is one of those simulated universes. Who would want a simulated universe with Donald Trump in it? Well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> just the fun of it. You must be well, a really there's that, that, there's that joke, isn't there, that somewhere... Uh, there was the, these um, aliens all gathered together, and one of them said to someone else around a podcast, for example, that somewhere in a parallel universe, somewhere Donald Trump is actually president of the United <laughs> <Yes>. States. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> a good laugh out there. Yeah, I mean, back to the ant and metaphor, and you would imagine. I mean, it's just like kids playing with an ant hill, like yeah. poking a stick into the ant hill. <laughs> it's, put this one in charge. It, it's like Donald Trump there. You know, everybody's just going crazy and trying to rebuild the whole thing, and then you. Poke the stick again. It's just another tweet from Donald Trump. Let's talk about let's talk about oversight, right? Let's talk about the future of AI. It seems like that it's of monumental importance that there are key values guiding this process yeah. and ethical guidelines. Yeah, and I from think the start before it gets away from us. Yeah, there. I mean, there are two sides to that discussion, and and the the first of is I mean, now we've been talking about even though I've I've been saying that I don't believe in the whole super sure. intelligence yeah. uh, discussion, but it's such such an interesting discussion because it opens up all these kind of philosophical uh, questions uh, that are interesting. And and when but you're just technology what, in general, I mean, exactly. The way but Facebook's used the way. But but when you're talking about that, there's an ethics question. So what should their ethics be? But I think I mean the other question is that we have AI right now, as you're saying, we have Facebook, we have the Facebook feed, which is basically a huge AI, which is kind of determining every day what people will see in their newsfeed. Who, whom, who of their friends will kind of go into the news phase, feed? Which companies, which ads, uh, which mood are you going to be in this morning? It's kind of determined on uh, by the the ten, the ten yeah by the algorithm. So and the same thing with the the Google algorithm. When you search for something, whatever you see there, it's determined by some kind of an algorithm. And so, so and we are seeing that. And and I think this is a really interesting question because we're seeing these algorithm kind of. Facebook and Google, of course, being kind of the most prevalent examples right now, but we're seeing these algorithms everywhere, and we, we're seeing more and more companies, we're seeing more and more of our everyday life being mediated by digital technology, and many of these being mediated by some kind of algorithm or artificial intelligence. And all of these, all of these AIs or algorithms or digital interfaces have some kind of an agenda 
Uh, Facebook's agenda, of course, is make more money. The same with Google, of course, because they're—I mean—they're—they're they're publicly owned companies, so they—they need to make money, yeah. and and that's <coughs> their agenda. They their agenda is not that you should be a better father or a better podcaster or whatever. That's that's your agenda, but it's not their agenda. So right now, the, these AIs are serving kind of—they're serving their masters, and and the master right now most of the time is profit. Isn't that problematic? It's very problematic, and and I mean I think that's it's basically one of the main reasons why we are seeing the whole tech lash situation right now, where people are kind of rebelling against technology and starting to understand that that technology actually has a huge influence on on our everyday life, and and a lot of that influence is determined by a very very small number of people living in in a small place called Silicon Valley. So it feels to me like we're already, uh, we're talking about ethics, but it seems like a lot of these AIs, as we call them, are already breaking the uh, our human ethics as, as they are. If we saw the, the violations that, uh, that they're already making, most of us individually would decide that those things were unethical. But we don't have much su- success with putting genies back into bottles. So how do we, how do we go about doing that? No, but I mean, I don't think it's a matter of putting the genie back in the, into the bottle because it, I think that when you're saying the genie is out of the bottle, it's it's very much like Ray Kurzweil saying that technology is there. There's nothing you can do about it. There's a, the only thing you do is kind of run along with the technology. You know, I think that's kind of a story that Silicon Valley has been trying to to sell to the world for the last 30 years that here comes technology, guys, and it's fast, it's exponential, it's dangerous, it's fascinating, and it's uncontrollable. And I think that the, the word is uncontrollable, which basically means politicians, citizens of the world, stay away. Stay away from this technology because it, it can only be controlled by technology itself and, and a very few number of people like Mark Zuckerberg and, and these people who, who knows technology. So, right. so stay away from this technology and then everything will be fine. And, and, and that's a political agenda. And it's a political, techno-political agenda, uh, which I think can be changed. And, and we've, we've done it before. I mean, we had this, the steam engine, we had the uh, steam trains, we had kind of uh, uh, telecommunications, telephones. We have had technology intruding into people's lives before, and we've dealt with it politically. And we have regulations, we have anti-monopoly regulations, we have mm-hmm. kind of regulations of technology. I mean, most technology... Uh, the steam engines and trains and factories and so on is heavily regu- regulated also kind of in, in the US and in England and not only in, not only in Denmark. Um, and and, and it's, it's an interesting thing. And I actually, in my book, I talked, I had a conversation, an interview with Margrethe Vestager, mm-hmm. who was the uh, competition commissioner, and now she's actually responsible for digital strategy in the EU commission. In, in the new in the new EU Commission, which is coming soon, and uh, and what she said is it's it's a strange thing that that we have all of this regulation. We are actually, as she said, and this is a quote: we are regulating the temperature of a fridge in a pizzeria in Vesterbroke in Copenhagen, uh, but we are not regulating Facebook, which has an algorithm which which kind of affects two two billion people around the world. And and mm-hmm. for all of these technology companies, we have this idea that we have to, as politicians, we have to stay away. And and it is, and I mean, I, I really agree with her. It is it is a strange thing. And I think we need, we really need to have a political focus on on that. And and that is, I mean, that is what's happening right now. The, the fact that she has become kind of the, the head of digital strategy or whatever it's called in the EU 
points to the fact that that politicians around the world are now waking up to to this fact that that technology technology can be changed and it it even though that we've we've we thought that technology had its own life we're now starting to understand that technology is political and it comes with a political agenda actually yeah i mean uh, arguably facebook is more powerful than most countries right with the with its with its income and, and yeah, yeah. its influence did you see the um, the was it Congress questioning yes. Mark Zuckerberg? Yes. Yes. I mean that that yes. appeared to me like theatre. It was quite embarrassing to and, watch. And and it, it played well. It played really well into Silicon Valley's agenda. Sure. Because it kind of underlined the whole thing about politicians don't understand technology. Here was kind of a Mark Zuckerberg. He kind of he was like the the priest of technology, and he understood the technology. And then you had all of these congressmen. Kind of posing ridiculously stupid yeah. questions that that basically showed yeah. that they knew nothing about the Facebook and the the business yeah. model. And but stuff. that felt staged to me to the extent where I know nothing about technology, but I know more than they did, and yeah. so it felt deliberately staged because they'll have had someone on their team that could have said, "Hey, hit that's a dumb question. Don't ask that." Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So, but but, but I think I mean, behind but uh, to a certain degree, I mean, I, I think politicians today are fairly dumb when it comes to technology. <laughs> I, I interviewed a couple of them, and I mean, Margrethe Vestager was one of the the politicians that actually knows what what she's talking about. But yeah. in general, if you take 179 members of parliament in 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 Denmark, I think it's uh, 170 of those who actually knows kind of a little bit about these these right. subjects. So so of course the general level of knowledge needs to grow. But then again, I mean, back to the Margrethe Veste, I quote about the pizzeria. I mean, these people, the 179 members of parliament, they're not experts in the temperature of a fridge in a pizzeria in Vestabroga in Copenhagen. Mm. They have uh, they have civil servants for, for that. So they, they need, but they need to have a an overall grasp of what technology is all about. And I think, I, but I basically, I think the, the most important thing that politicians need to understand right now is that they need to get out of this um, spell that Silicon Valley has cast on, on, on the world. They, they basically need to think that we can take control of this. We can actually, the, the technology is not kind of a self-determining force that just kind of powers through society and we can't do anything about it. They, they basically need to get back into the show and say, I mean, I, I may not be an expert in technology or artificial intelligence or anything, but I can actually do something about as a as a politician here. So, and is the solution then, if you were uh, you were going to decide, going to be regulation at the national level? Or are we talking about wh- who's writing the algorithm? Yeah, I, and I what mean, should be in the algorithm? I I, th- I think there are so many levels, and this is this is probably why I'm I'm in because I'm a Dane as well because I. Denmark is, I mean, we're characterized by being a country where we always talk about we have a lot of regulation, but the thing about Denmark is that we're actually not that regulated when it comes down to it. But because, I mean, take a uh, look at the labor market here. We, we don't even have a minimum wage. I mean, everybody thinks that we have a minimum wage in Denmark. A lot of Danes think that we have a minimum wage, but we don't have a, a government-regulated minimum wage. It's decided by kind of the labor unions and uh, the employers. And so a lot of decisions in the Danish society is, is made by unions and uh, in, in collaboration by well, in, in, in civil society. So I think the, the kind of the focus on technology and artificial intelligence, it needs to happen on so, so many levels. So mm-hmm. it needs to happen on kind of in the individual level. People have to think about ethics. If you're a designer and you're building a digital interface, 
and it has an element of AI in it, and and there is something unethical about it, about this interface. Then, as a designer, you need to think about that, and you need to have an ethical conscience. And and if you don't have that, then maybe you can go to your union, and uh, and you can ask them. So, do we have ethical guidelines? And and if they don't have it, well, then maybe there is a government regulation, or there is a government institute, or there is an ombudsman or something. One of the things that I've been arguing for is that we need an AI ombudsman in Denmark, which is which would be similar to we we actually have a very good uh, consumer ombudsman in in Denmark, which protects uh, consumers uh, primarily when it, in in matters of advertising yeah. and consumer regulation and yeah. so on. And so, and and I mean, I've worked as a marketing director, and this institution kind of it 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 should be when you're a marketing dire- director, it should somehow be your enemy because you are playing right. against the the ombudsman. But actually, it doesn't feel that way. Even if you're a marketing director, it actually feels like a service where he or she actually pr- provides information and tells you what is the regulation and what can you do, which basically means that everybody is on a fair kind of playing field where kind of your competitors. Uh, as a business are on the same level and everybody knows what the rules are and so on and so on. Yeah. And I, I think when it comes to AI, we could really need an ombudsman which 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 had some of the same powers as, as the consumer ombudsman has today. Do we not require a global ombudsman though? I mean, yes. You mean, you mean kind of anchor Facebook in the, in covers the, in crosses the United borders. Nations mandate? Or? Yeah, yeah. But I, well, I, the United I, Nations don't really have any power, right? No, so United Nations wouldn't be able to do it. To, a power of ent- an entity yeah. of power has to do it, and then that that, that requires us to have a world yeah. power to do it. Yeah, to a certain degree. I mean, that that was what Makaida Vestaya was doing when she was a competition commissioner. Of course, she she focused specifically on on the competition aspect of artificial intelligences sure. and digital technology and within so on within the EU yeah but I mean I think it's it's probably optimistic to have uh, some kind of a global regulatory sure. institution because yeah. the, the UN is, is powerless in these matters but the EU actually has real powers when it could so how does an EU power impact an American business that's pulling data out of Europe. Well, I mean, look at the GDPR, which was the the data regulation, which came out uh, a year and a half ago, actually, which which says if you want to do business in Europe, which which has anything to do with collecting data from people, you had to you have to adhere to the GDPR, the right. General okay. Data Protection Regulation, which yep. means if you're an American company, be it Facebook or Google or whatever. Then, if you want to be part of the Euro- Euro- European Union, which is the biggest commercial market in the world uh, today, then you have to play with our rules. Which, which basically means that there are a lot of companies saying, "Well, I mean, Europe is an important market for us, so we'll change our rules for the whole world." Uh, so yeah. that means that Europe, Europe is actually big enough to be able to change markets and kind of companies and businesses sure. all over the world. I, I mean, of course, Facebook actually did was that it pulled data out of uh, Europe and moved customers from Europe to other countries and so on. So basically kind of to dodge those rules. So sure. that's, of course, another yeah. way you can go about it. But but I mean, the GDPR has had this kind of real consequences for, for businesses saying, well, I mean, it's basically just easier for us to follow the European rules because the European rules are stricter than any other rules around the world. So you just we, follow the most. We just follow. Yeah, if you follow the, the the strictest regime, yeah. then you can, you are good in the U.S. You are good in China. You are good in Africa and all over the world. And the only disadvantage is that you can't manipulate people as, as much. No, not. I mean, I the GDPR doesn't protect you f- 
totally against surveillance capitalism, as it's also called, but but it, it does protect you to a, a certain degree. A certain degree. Fascinating. So you you uh, you've worked in marketing. You were the director of marketing at B and O. Yes. Um, how do you see the role of uh, marketing and social media and this intersection with AI going forward? Yeah, it's actually interesting because I, I I wrote another book which was called uh, "The Perfect Storm," the perfect storm, which is which was a very much a business book on social media and and kind of the message in that book was, listen up corporations and businesses. Now there is something called social media. This book was written 10, 10 years ago. Now, now there's this thing called social media. It's all about blogs. It's all about people, kind of the consumer getting back power. They have a voice. So if you publish anything as a corporation or a company, your your audience will react and they'll talk about you. You'll, they'll talk about your products and, and so on in social media. So basically the message was, You've lost power, and if you want to play, play, have any role to play in this market again, you have to play along with the rules of social media, and the rules in social media are made by ordinary people. So the whole kind of idea about right. power swelling up from, from underneath, from below to, to the top. Yeah. It's still a relevant but message though, right? It, it is, but it's kind of changed, and I think that's the message of my second book, and, and it was partly inspired by the fact that when I... I was hired as a marketing director in Bang & Olufsen, that's like four or five years ago. Uh, what I realized was that AIs and algorithms and what's called programmatic buying, segmentation, has kind of turned the table again. So now the corporations have the upper hand again because what, what's happened, what happened in the meantime was that everybody went on social, social media and then kind of companies started to collect data and so companies like Facebook, Google, but also there's like hundreds of data harvesting companies that we, I mean, they, we don't know them. They, they, they have kind of anonymous sounding names. Cambridge Analytica. Yeah, well, well, <laughs> yeah. But, but companies that collect, that probably has like thousands of data on, on, on you and on me, and they're selling these data to corporations and media and, and so on. So there's a huge industry, and it's not only Facebook and, and Google, but... But what I realized when, as a marketing director, was that then if I was going to run a campaign, I could buy any segment of people. If I wanted to market in uh, something to a segment of people making this and that much money with so and so many kids uh, living here and there, I mean, we could get data on everything. And then you could do retargeting, as you all know, that when people go and visit something on the web, you can kind of pick up on that. So if you they go to your website, you can retarget them. So you, you can give them the same message on Facebook, on Google, on Politique, on Balance, on New York Times, and so on. And there were just so many kind of smart tools, some of them using artificial intelligence, some of them just using primitive algorithms. Uh, but the fact that... that there were, all, there were all of these data on the internet and it was being collected and corporations could actually buy into all of these data and use it to manipulate or kind of sell their products. And I remember just being quite shocked and, and a little scared because I'd written this book, which was all about the consumer getting back power. And suddenly I, I realized that, that the world had changed, that now the corporations were back in power. Yeah. And I think that's the phase we're in right now. Now we're realizing that what we thought was a very decentralizing technology, the internet and digital media in, in itself. We thought that, and, and I think that it's back to maybe the theme of this podcast is technological determinism. And, and I was a kind of a technological determinist myself. I, I believed that the internet and social media was a liberating force. 
that it would set us free, it would decentralize, it would kind of take power from the powerful and give power to the powerless, and the powerless could rise. So we had the Tahir Square in Egypt, and we had social media. And, yeah, it was and democracy. It was democracy yeah. coming back. And, and, and then we realized, well, technology doesn't have an agenda itself. I mean, it can be captured by the powerful, and the powerful can use all of this data, and it, they can put it into smart artificial intelligences, and, and then suddenly they can control the world. And, and that's what we're seeing right now. So it, we, we see it commercially with kind of companies like Facebook and Google. Uh, and, but also, I mean, any big corporation that are using all of these tools can manipulate with, with customers. But we also see it in the political arena with countries like China, Russia, Iran, um, getting back control uh, and actually being able to surveil people even more than they've ever been able yeah. to do. Is determined by those that are controlling it. Yeah. How do you see a counter move to this? Do you see if um, Facebook, Google, these companies aren't regulated, that enough consumers are going to be enlightened to say "fuck this"? Like we're signing out of this uh, manipulative crap. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, the, the problem about these tools is that they are they're really good tools. I mean, I love Facebook. I love most of the features on Facebook, yeah. and Google is incredible. I mean, they are really, really good tools. So I think. I mean. We can't just opt out of it because they've become more or less like the backbone of our societies. I mean, who could live a life without Google? Who could live a life without Facebook? It's it's pretty difficult. You can. Well, you, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, the thing is, I've, and I've, I've been thinking several times. I read this book called uh, Surveillance Capitalism, which is um, written by Shoshana Zuboff, which is a really interesting book. But it's also terrifying because it basically kind of portrays the whole how kind of companies are, are using data to manipulate and so on. What's the name of it? Uh, surveillance Capitalism. Okay. Yeah, I, um, I read this book and several times after reading this book, I was like, well, maybe I should quit Facebook, which is a little difficult because I'm, I'm actually a consultant. I'm consulting companies on how they should use social media. So from a business perspective, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, may, it may be a bad idea. But I had, I mean, I was really thinking is I need, I need to do this. Uh, and and I realized, wait, maybe I could actually live a life without the newsfeed. But I couldn't, I seriously, I could not live a life without Messenger because most of the communication with my friends is happening in Messenger. And the group functionality, I mean, whenever I, I do, I, I climb and I do different kinds of sports, all of these things are coordinated using Facebook groups. Uh, even our kind of uh, the co-op uh, group of our building is, is in a Facebook group. And I mean, so everything is just taking place in, in within kind of the Facebook environment. So we require a competitor yes. being able to match in functionality, yeah. but have an algorithm yeah. that's yeah. gearing yeah. towards well, they maximizing got one, they? well-being. Instagram, then they bought it, and then they got one, and it was WhatsApp, yes. so they bought it. And I mean, it's not that... <laughs> Can we maximize human well-being? Isn't, shouldn't that be the algorithm instead of maximizing profitability? I mean, with enough funding from yeah. external sources. But I mean I think I mean I think that's one of the things that we really need to think about now and I think it's 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 also an agenda for startups and you are seeing it in the startup environment now startup companies technology companies starting to think about the, the human aspect and actually I mean you know Airbnb I've been using Airbnb several times and Airbnb was great. I remember the first times, a couple of times I used Airbnb. It was just, oh, it's so easy. You can get a flat in New York. You can even get a room. You can stay with great people and you can meet new people. The whole, I mean, the feeling of kind of the world opening up uh, was just so great. And now Airbnb is just a, it's just a corporate asshole. I mean, to be, I mean, quite honest, it's just, it's just, it, they, if, if you're a host, if you're a host on Airbnb, they demand that you have clean towels and kind of soap and 
toothbrush. I mean, they want you to be a, a hotel, hotel yeah. which is just ridiculous. And uh, and it's the same feeling when you when as a traveler you're using Airbnb and it's 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 like being in a hotel. Kind of the the human aspect of it is completely gone. It's been corporatized and sanitized to the level where everything that was fun and interesting about Airbnb is gone. It's it's it's, it's like user-generated Marriott or <laughs> Holiday Inn or something like. It's it's terrible. And it, this is this is the point is that I actually experienced. There's a company. I think it's a Danish startup company. It's called Human Hotel. And they're building basically an Airbnb platform, but with a very deliberate focus on getting kind of the humanness yeah. back into kind of uh, sharing your apartment. Yeah. I actually hosted a German guy. He was here for something called Tech Festival in, in Copenhagen. Yeah. And and I, I had that original feeling of the, what Airbnb was all about. Like he, he visited our, uh, he stayed in a room in our family. He brought little gifts for our kids and we hung out and we talked. He had breakfast with us. And, and, and it was just like that feeling that I had originally with Airbnb. And I think you can, I mean, I think you can build solutions that can do this if you are deliberate about it. And, and the thing about Airbnb, they are very deliberate about creating the Holiday Inn of user-generated apartments, and, and it's just terrible. But I think we need to get the kind of, we need to th- get back to the point where we are thinking about what we what we want f- with technology and how we want to use technology to create better worlds or more interesting worlds or more fascinating or more fun worlds and so on, instead of just creating. And it's also, I mean, more I guess it's... Like, yeah, it's, I guess it's also because the whole startup thing has been mixed up with this crazy idea about being incredibly rich in a very short time. I think the humans broke Airbnb because I think that when you hear interviews with the um, with the owner of Airbnb and I, I've got clients that, that know the, the owner of Airbnb and he, he tells the same story yeah. of, of it being this human thing and I think when it started people got the joke and and they told stories about that but then when it went past the early adopters to the I'm going to get a cheap holiday when people started mm. reviewing mm. they started reviewing based on they didn't have enough clean towels they didn't change yeah. our bed and yeah. then when people gave feedback they said you left my place in a in a mess yeah and those negative reviews caused people that were renting their places out to go yeah. oh well yeah. If we're going to rent it out again, we're going to need five stars. But but my point is you can build a lot of those things in the interface. If you are developing Airbnb and you see this kind of tendency developing, then, well, maybe what you think is you should look at, okay, we have a five-star five rating. And the five-star five rating right now motivates people to complain about towels and toothbrushes sure, and right. stuff like oh, that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so, and, but we can also see the five-star rating makes people kind of rent more. So we're making more money. If yep. we take away the five stars, we'll make less money. Yep. Uh, so, but but this, and and what I'm saying is, well, maybe they should have taken away the five star rating and see what the the community would develop into. Yeah, then and I I agree as well. But but I think a lot of that comes down to the what's next, and we want to grow this business, so we'll take investment. And then as soon as you take investment, you no longer own your company. Yeah, and the investor or investors say, well this is how we're going to scale this business. Yes. We're going to review yes. it based on making everybody involved try harder to please the people yes. Yeah, because that they have there. a fiduciary obligation to the yeah. stockholders. But, but, and it also comes back to, I mean, it's also because of venture capitalists. And when, whenever a venture capitalist invests in a company, 
they they don't expect to get their investment back once or twice or three times. They, they want the investment back. It's not only 10x, it's yeah. 100x. Yeah. I mean, because they're investing in maybe kind of a fund is maybe what, 20 or 30 companies. And uh, and they yeah. they know that maybe one or two of those companies are going to make it. And if they're going to pay for the whole thing and they're all yeah. going to get really rich, it, it needs to be a multiple of 100 or maybe even thousands. And, and, and that just creates unhealthy business things. So then that needs regulating as well. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. G- gentlemen, um, we can talk all that. Yeah. Uh, I'm, mindful, <laughs> we know. I'm mindful of our time, though. Um, so if it's okay with you guys, we take a quick break, uh, hear a word from our sponsors, and then um, we'll wrap it up with a quick fire round. Studying for an executive MBA at Henley Business School in Denmark is an intense and rewarding experience. If you want to achieve the best possible outcomes in business and in life, we can give you the skills and knowledge you need through the Henley MBA. For more info, visit henley.dk. Okay, we are back with our quick fire round. Um, the questions will be quick fire. Your answers certainly don't need to be. Uh, do you have any um, habits, routines, or rituals that you do on a daily basis to keep you mentally or physically sharp? I don't think I have anything on a daily basis. Well, I mean, that would have to be that I bicycle everywhere. So, yeah. and I actually, I, I hate it whenever I, if I have a meeting somewhere and and I have to go by car and I don't get my kind of morning bicycle drive, then I'm, it's just, the day's just not as good as any other day. Yeah. So, but I mean, staying fit and kind of staying sane is I, I do sports. I play, I used to play kayak polo. Oh, I'm a for, former Danish champion in uh, kayak polo. Oh, wow. um, cool. Could you tell what is kayak it, polo? It's like handball, kind of the European game handball that non, no, nobody in America knows what it is. <laughs> um, but it's like uh, basketball or handball in a kayak. So there's goal. Each not on end. a horse. Not on a horse. No, no, no. no, no. Okay. Yeah, yeah I've, I've heard that. So how do you get the horses into the pool? So, And then I climb, which is also a little strange in a, in a flat country like Denmark. But I mean, there are kind of climbing gyms around Copenhagen. Yeah, yeah, some really cool ones, actually. And you were a world, you were a, a champion kayak polo? Danish, Danish champion, I think it was like nine, ten years ago. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And is, that, so, do you, is it a solo sport? No, it's a team sport. There's like five kayaks on each team and there's a goal in each end. And it, it's played very much with like basketball with screenings and kind of all these things. Is there any video on that YouTube? Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you go YouTube. There's, um, there's just, uh, I think it was the World Cup played in Italy. There's like live cast, uh, TV cast. Yeah, gotta, and there's, it, it's, it is a niche, niche, niche sport, but it, it's getting bigger. It's, I mean, it's like I've always done sports in my, my life and now I'm 47 years old. I'm getting a little, little old. And so you have to find the niche sports to be able to kind of, uh, if you want to become a Danish champion, then yeah. you, you shouldn't go for football or handball or anything. You should go for kayak polo. Are you uh, coaching anyone or training? No, I, I actually stopped playing because I, I got injured and that's why I'm climbing okay. and doing what every every other person older than 40 years old is doing in Denmark, riding a, a road bike. Yeah. So yeah. being a mammal, a middle-aged man in life. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Have you ever undergone any one experience or event that changed your life, made you maybe a better businessman, better person? I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm very much. I, I, I don't really believe in kind of the, the whole the thing about your personality changing like that. I think my personality changes, but it changes very slowly. So, but I mean, I've been to, I've been to some conferences around the world, and they, I think the best conference I ever went to was. Um, 
it's called the Next Web Conference in, in Amsterdam. And that was kind of the early years of uh, social media. And it was a tiny little conference of 500 people. And they were all, it was, as we talked about earlier, it was all about this, that social media is changing the world and so on. And I just remember kind of all of the things that I got back from this conference in Amsterdam. Most of it just went into my first book, uh, The Perfect Storm. So I, I think that's probably one of the kind of life-changing things because it made me write a book and that, that book made me quit my job and, and now I'm working on my own as an How author. How did you find that conference back then? Was it coincidental or...? That's very good. I think actually someone from Copenhagen, someone in, within the internet business had been there. And I think I went there the second year the conference was there. And, and in general, I think, I mean, you should always go for conferences when they're young. So when they get older than three or four years old, then they get corporate and, and boring. So try to find the kind of conferences within your business area, which is which is young yeah. and, and still has some dynamic feel to it. What's something weird about you? Something strange? Well, that's the kayak polo thing. I think I, so. I already, that's, yeah, I've, I've already, I've already been there. That's uh, that's probably the weirdest, weirdest thing. Yeah. What motivates you and demotivates you? Well, I, I'm a, I'm, I work as an author and a public speaker, and I'm very much motivated be on by being on a stage. I mean, kind of talking to people, and it's it's funny because you always hear kind of people saying what what people are most afraid of in life is uh, death and public speaking. Yeah. And, and for me, I'm, I'm actually not afraid of either. I mean, I'm not that afraid of dying and, and I'm definitely not afraid of public speaking. Of course, I'm always a little nervous when I get on the stage, especially if, if, if it's a crowd of like 500 or 1,000 people yeah. or something. If it's a big crowd, for some strange reason, you get a little more nervous, but uh, I'm never terrified. And I, I kind of love that energy that yeah. you get out of... Um, of, of of public speaking. I noticed that in myself too. I, I always get uh, nervous prior to speaking, but the moment I start, a calm comes over me. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah. And then I, by the time I'm done, I don't want it to stop. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I mean, the only thing is if you have kind of a performance in, in the evening, you, you are so hyped up that, that it's difficult to kind of fall asleep. So I, I yeah. mean, I really understand why actors kind of performing on theater maybe doing two shows in the evening coming home at like 11 12 o'clock in the evening i mean i really do understand why alcohol can end up being a problem because you really need a drink to kind yeah, of calm down again system, yeah. yeah so um, you're invited to a dinner party and you can bring two guests along with you alive or dead they obviously they have to be alive if you bring them with you but from history who would you bring and why that they could be alive they they need to be alive at for the party. the party but they don't have to be alive for you to say i'm good, gonna bring them along i'm really butchering this question right <laughs> I, I, I one of my favorite musicians is uh, nick cave i think that i'll probably bring him um as kind of one and then i think actually as i mentioned earlier ada lovelace was this woman from the 18th century, yep. uh, daughter of Lord Byron, uh, and the world, world's first computer programmer. I, I would really like to talk to her about, I mean, being a woman in the 18th century, uh, or, sorry, the 19th century, being a woman in the 19th century and being kind of a mathematical genius, working with Charles, ba Charles Babbage, the, the inventor of the first mechanical computer in the world. Uh, the daughter of Lord Byron. I mean, what? I mean, what would that be like? I think that's that's an an interesting story. Have you had a teacher or mentor that has most influenced your life? Um, not, not really. Actually, I've actually, 
I've had very good bosses um, through my life and always been kind of inspired by that and good teachers, but I've never had someone where I was like, this really kind of changed my life. Have you ever been a mentor for someone else yet? Well, I mean, not, not kind of a, on kind of an official basis where we said, and now I'm your mentor. Because of course I've been, I mean, I've been, uh, I've been working in companies where I've had employee, employees and sometimes some of them have been, it's been kind of a mentor-mentee relationship, but I've never had kind of like kind of an official mentor-mentee relationship with anyone. What, um, what book or books have you been most influenced by? Well, again, I'm I'm always I'm I'm always a little afraid of people who are saying that they have one book that changed their life and that this is the book for kind of for for the rest of their life. I'm sure. I'm always and I'm little I'm in the same way with music. I'm very fascinated by something in a certain amount of time and then I kind of forget about it. So but right now my favorite book and the book that I'm saying that everybody should read is the 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 book that I mentioned before Shoshana Zuboff's uh, Surveillance Capitalism. Yeah. I think that's probably the, if you're interested in technology and artificial intelligence, but kind of, but also the the future of mankind, uh, you should read this book, uh, Surveillance Capitalism. And then, actually, if I can, I mention two books. Absolutely. And, and this is probably an easy like. <laughs> uh, I just read this this summer. Unfortunately, both of these books are 700 pages, kind of tomes of like uh, heavy, heavy knowledge. Uh, the other book is uh, Karl Popper's. Um, Enemies of the Open Society, which is basically a discussion of democracy. It was written in 1943, uh, and it's a critique of uh, Stalinism or communism, but in, in general, a critique of authoritarianism. And But basically, the way it's constructed is that it's, it, the first half of it is a critique of uh, Platon. He hates Platon, and that's it. And then he, uh, the second, third, Plato, Plato. Plato. Oh yeah, Plato, right. Plato, yeah, Plato, yeah, Plato the, not Plato. Yes, Plato. And then uh, Hegel, uh, the German philosopher, yeah. he hates as well. Uh, it was a bit dry. Yes, but and and he basically also calls him like a quasi Nazist. Um, and and the interesting thing is, it's a book from 1943. It's about Plato. It's about Hegel. And it sounds incredibly boring, but it's written. It's so well written. He writes brilliant, brilliantly. And then he also, I mean, he just takes kind of philosophers and he just tears them off the pedestal and kind of. It says that Plato was full of shit and, and Hegel was even worse and he's kind of a he was the founder of Nazis moralism and so it's it's just it's such an amazing book and, and it's it's been so incredibly influential. And and actually the funny thing was the reason I I have studied I did study political science back like twenty years ago. Uh, so it's kind of relevant to that. But the reason why I picked up the book was because I I, I went to a talk with um, a Danish Norwegian, I think, or Swedish um, uh, data scientist who was doing artificial intelligence research. And we were talking about what we were talking about here, the whole kind of, are they getting smart, smarter than us and the ethics about uh, artificial intelligence and how to control them and, and what should we do? And then he said, if you want to understand this and, and really get into this, there's one book you should read. And then everybody's thinking, this is going to be like a book by Elon Musk or kind of Ray Kurzweil or something about artificial intelligence. And then he says, you should read Karl Popper, Enemies of the Open Society. And I, I heard that. I was like, that's interesting. I need to read this book. And then so I spent the entire summer with 700 heavy pages of political philosophy written by kind of a 
Um, How do you approach a 700 page um, book like that? Is it in installments or just one go page for it? at a time? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it, it was my summer reading book, so it was crazy. Yeah. I, I brought it to the pool and yeah. the airplane, and it's like everybody else was kind of reading uh, crime stories, and kind of, and I was reading my enemies of the open society. And, and the only thing that I, I regret was that I didn't buy it on my Kindle because it was really heavy, written on kind of heavy design. paper. You it don't was, want it to take up one, any of those 18 kilograms that you get on the plane. No, 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 the plane, and kind of, it, was just, it was just simply just heavy to bring to the bed and to the pool and so on. Well, Fantastic, thank you. I'm mindful of our time and I want to wrap up the podcast today with one final question. And we ask that to all of our guests. And that is, what do you think you can teach Denmark through your work, and what do you think Denmark can still teach the rest of the world? Now, I know you've lived abroad and studied in Colombia, in the United States. Yeah. So, just this to and from. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think I think I kind of mentioned it before. I think what what we need to understand in Denmark and kind of around the world as well is that that technology is not a force in itself. It's not. I mean, technology is not determining. It does doesn't have a specific agenda that we cannot change. So technology is a human invention. It can be changed by human beings. And and a lot of the things that we're seeing technology do today is is created by people. And, and that can be changed. And I think so that's something I need. I think politicians in Denmark and Europe, all over the world need to understand. And I think I think we have a unique opportunity in Denmark to actually be and the Nordic countries, maybe even in Europe, to be the region of the world where we actually do this. And we take technology, and I think we've already done that. I mean, look at, I mean, what, what, what's in, in what we've done with labor markets, and which is also kind of also has a lot to do with technology. What kind of the way we regulated the labor market in, in Denmark, social security, flex security, all of these models is basically political solutions to a technological challenge that we faced 150 to 100 years ago. And I think some of the things that we did as a Danish society, the way we approached these uh, challenges. I think we need to do some of the same things, and and we're facing that situation now. And if we if we succeed in doing that, I really hope we are able to do that. Then I think we can teach the world a lesson again about what what does it mean to build a great society, where new technologies are challenging our society. Fantastic, Peter Svar, a true pleasure. Thanks for coming by the studio today. Thanks for being here. And to our audience, don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, review, anything to help our podcast continue to grow. And until next week, see you on the GDP. Are you getting the most out of your time in Denmark? Pick up your printed copy of the English language newspaper Copenhagen Post today to access relevant news and event information guaranteed to enhance your working and family life.